What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Amira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different completist guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're gonna do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> That's actually funny. That's not, it's funny, I'll tell you why. Right? <laughs> That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, I'm good. Well, welcome to Death Row Diaries. This is episode seven. I'm your host, Matt Ralston. And I'm Louie May Noguera. And yeah, this is Death Row Diaries, and you're calling from San Quentin. San Quentin Death Row. This is the only podcast with a death row prisoner who's the co-host. And today's episode will be about serial killer William G. Bonning. And he is the fourth person executed since the death penalty was reinstated in California in 1970. Yeah, so this is one of those guys that even if you're against the death penalty like I am, I I just kind of shrug. I mean, if anyone really, you know, this guy is a horrifying character. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his nickname is the Freeway Killer, and uh, make no mistake about it, uh, in prison, on death row at California State Prison, this guy had a target on him from day one. There was a price on his head. Um, he killed, um, well, he was convicted of killing 21 boys, teenage young men and, and boys. And he's suspected of killing as many as 36. And he's been bad, a bad seed since he was, I mean, a child, six years old, seven years old. He was already uh, in an orphanage because they couldn't, um, uh, it's the same pattern that we've seen in just about everyone we've talked about. You know, neglectful parents. He's sent to this orphanage where he's raped, uh, taken advantage of, raped basically by older boys. And, I mean, all these years later, after he had murdered all these kids, you know, he actually had scars all over him from from being sexually assaulted uh, at a young age. Yeah, unfortunately, that's what happens in these, some of these institutions in the late 60s and 70s. There's a lot of, um, you know, sexual, um, aggressive older boys that victimize younger children. Um, you know, not excusing what he did for this, but you kind of understand that that has an impact on a child's life. And he was in these orphanages at the age of six. His parents uh, put him in there and... and I mean, you have to look at some of this stuff. Both his parents are alcoholics. Um, he's left to be cared for by his grandfather, who's a convicted child molester. It, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to really figure out how this kid was developed. And, uh, you know, he, he returns home to his mother after you know, several years in these detention centers. And what's the first thing he does? He molests a number of younger children. 
it's just it's the same pattern as you as you just stated. And he was almost monomaniacal in in his quest of at times just constantly raping and killing teenage boys. Yeah, it's something for him that it just didn't change. I mean, he, he graduates from high school, joins the Air Force, and he becomes an aerial gunner in Vietnam. And by all accounts, you look at his record, and he receives you know, medals of honor and valor for saving another airman's life while under fire, enemy fire. But then later he admits that he sexually assaulted two fellow soldiers at gunpoint during the same time. So this guy is, I mean, really torn between two different things. He finally gets out of the Air Force in 1968 and 69, and right away, the first thing he does, he kidnaps and sexually assaults five boys, and then he gets caught and he pleads guilty to him, and the charges are forced oral copulation, molestation, but they send him to a Tascadero, I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, but a Tascadero, state prison or mental hospital where, I mean, they don't do nothing to them now. There's no treatment for child molestation, and from there he's sent to prison. Yeah, and he gets out um, soon after. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he gets out the first time in 1974, and he moves to Southern California, and he, again, rapes a 14-year-old boy at gunpoint. He's sent to prison again after being caught for one to 15 months. I'm sorry, one to 15 years. He's released again in 1978. And eight months later, he begins what's probably one of the most horrific serial murder sprees in U.S. history. Um, it's just, it, it's incredible because he does one thing one time and then another thing, like he's almost confused, but he's already starting. So, on May 19, uh, May 28, 1979, he grabs a kid, and I'm for the for the sake of the the, the victims in this, I'm only going to say his name was Thomas L. His last name starts with L. I don't want to say the, the full name. I just think out of respect for the children that were murdered. Uh, he's a 13 year old boy, and this is where his first murder starts. He beats the child, steps, uh, slices his throat, stabs him, strangles him to death. Um, he cuts off the child's genitalia. And then a, a couple weeks later, he's arrested for molesting a 17-year-old boy at Dana Point. Once again, he's arrested. They don't know about the murder he's committed, but he's mistakenly released. And this is really scary because on the way home, he tells one of his friends, Frazier, and I quote, no one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. And of course, he's referring to his victims, leaving them alive. He's never going to do that again. And that's where the spree starts. So he was mistakenly released? Yeah. Uh, Orange County Jail in 1979 had him for trauma station charges for um, molesting a 17-year-old boy, and he should have been sent to prison, but he was mistakenly released. And that's when this huge murder spree starts. 
And if I may, this is one of the only serial killers that I studied and have had the, the well, the regrettable uh, circumstance to actually know him. This particular serial killer always used a co-defendant or a crime partner. Normally serial killers, yeah, sometimes they may have one person that helps them. One's dominant, one submissive. This particular serial killer has always used a co-defendant or crime partner in all of these murders. And he changed them along the way. He went through four different crime partners in less than a two-year span. Hey, yeah, so, yeah, he has these, he finds these guys to go along with him in his van. And to me, that's always scary. It's scary enough that there's these kinds of people out there, but just that there's other people that will kind of just go along with it, you know? And that to me, that seems um, like improbable that he could have that many collaborators and not have gotten caught, right? Well, yeah, that's, that's one of the biggest things that shocked me when I, when I first started looking at this guy in his case. He's able to find four different killers to assist him in all of these crimes. I mean, where do you... I wouldn't know where to find four child molesters, much less molesters that go along with, with him to go murder other kids. I mean, this is insane that he found them so quickly and one right after the other one. Yeah, so there, there was a house. He ended up living in Downey, uh, which is uh, just, you know, outside of downtown L.A. And his neighbor would have these big parties. And I think, so uh, Bonin was a homosexual. And these parties, I think, a lot of homosexuals, um, a lot of gay men would kind of hang out at these parties. And he was for being one of these serial killer creepy guys, he was pretty smart. And so he could kind of reel people in, I think, is, is the way I understood it. Yeah, and I guess I could see that because um, when I first saw him, um, and let me just explain the layout here. On death row, there's... At this time, when I first came here in 1980, there was only really one major yard. And um, once you were victimized by someone here, I guess politically, they were motivated to make a protective custody yard to put all these guys that couldn't live there because for the most part, they just stayed in their cell. They couldn't go outside or they'd get killed. And Bonnie was one of those guys that could never come outside. And the talk on the yard was on site, kill him. Because not only was he just a serial killer, but his crimes were against children. And there, I mean, I'm only speaking in terms of the people around me, and the talk on the yard was kill him. I mean, this wasn't my sentiment. I wasn't out, uh, you know, looking to do this, but I know that most of the guys that worked out in the area that I worked out in, and most of these guys were convicts, and most of them were fathers or grandfathers. And there was, and, and there was a price on this guy's head. Um, there was rumor that 
one of the victim's family members had put on a price on this guy's head. But he was on yard four, which was separated from the normal yard by about 50, oh, I'd say about 50 yards. But you would see him sitting at a table playing cards all day, and you wouldn't guess who he's sitting with. So let me give you a picture. You have William Bonnie, the freeway killer, sitting in one position. His card-playing partner is Randy Kraft, the um, scorecard killer, who, again, is another gay killer. On the other side of them is another serial killer, Rodney Akala, who is the dating game killer. And across from him sits the fourth serial killer, who is um, David Carpenter, the trailside killer. So you got to understand, when you see these guys sitting there, between the four of them, there's an excess of probably 260 murders. So what they're, are you talk about? They're given, they're isolated into their, it's protective, so all the protected guys can hang out with each other? The yard is called, at that time, was Yard 4. They've expanded that since then because people found ways to get on those yards, and there was a number of times where guys were stabbed out there because a normal guy, a convict, was able to make his way out there. He snuck out there. He used, you know, Houdini tricks, whatever you want to call it. So they've made other yards to protect these guys. But, yeah, that's that's the makeup of that yard. It was basically a lot of child molesters, a lot of serial killers. And that was his table. I remember observing him and a lot of guys making those comments. Like, I'd like to collect that money from that guy's head. Well, if I had a relative who were killed by one of these guys, I don't know how I would gain access, but I think offering money to the prison community to kill him, I could see myself going down that road, you know? Um Oh, yeah, I was going to say, absolutely. I can see how someone would be so upset someone murdering their child and trying to gain access. Again, I, I have no evidence that this actually took place, but they talk around the, the water cooler on death row was exactly that. Yeah, and it just makes it, it makes me angry just thinking about it because here's these guys that they have something in common they may be having a better time behind bars than they ever did in the real world, not counting when they were raping and torturing people. And yeah, it just, it doesn't seem like something that should be allowed to happen, you know, but, um, cause like you were saying before, they would have, uh, playing cards. They would trade little photos of their victims and, and they were, they were celebrating it, you know? Yeah. And they have their own set of groupies as well. They're like rock stars here. They trade the victims' cards. I mean, can you imagine that? It's like having a Michael Jordan card. These guys have a picture of one of their victims, and that's their trading card. And they have a picture of themselves in the back of it. These cards actually exist. And the murder memorabilia, or whatever they call it, they celebrate this stuff. And this goes on. It's one of the reasons I was talking about the death penalty as it is in California just doesn't work from a standpoint of just the finance behind it and these guys are never going to get executed this one happened to get executed but the majority are not going to which leads us to 
really the, the, the second murder in Bonnie's uh, career, and it happened on August the 4th of 1979. And this was in the company of his crime partner, Vermin Butts. And, um, yeah, they abducted a, a 17-year-old Westminster boy named Mark S. Um, as he walked to the theater. And then later on, um, they find his raped um, body that was violated with foreign objects. Um, he was, um, he died because of a result of entering into shock from what was being done to him. I mean, just talking about this, as you said, upsets me. It, 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 I'll have another way to put it, but it pisses me off. It really does. And more so because at that particular time in 1979, I used to walk down Beach Boulevard and I used to take the bus at 4.30 in the morning to Beach to surf. And I wonder how many times Bonnie or any of these guys passed me while I boarded the bus. Yeah, and, and you wonder, you know, I mean, I've never been mugged or anything. And I, I think it's because of where I grew up and I was always aware of violence and I, I just I'm also kind of physically imposing and and you know you were physically imposing it even as as a teenager you didn't look like someone who'd be easy to mess with I think and I you know I was just picture them driving around and looking for someone they they identify as as being weak or vulnerable yeah uh, you're absolutely right i think that's exactly what probably saved you and i from these kind of encounters was because of the way i looked i mean i at 17 i didn't look like the kind of guys you wanted to cross and these guys i mean think about it, they're driving around a van looking for kids uh and it's it's not like it's being you know, it's one every six months or one every month nine months the third murder happens the following day on August the 5th. And again, they find a 17-year-old. This kid's out of West Germany. He's a student. His name is Marcus G. And he was hitchhiking. They abduct him. They drive, actually, the boy to Bonning's home, where they rape him, sodomize him, beat him. And they kill him by stabbing him 77 times. And they just discard his body along the Malibu freeway. You know, this obviously, is, for me at least, it's hard to talk about. Just to, um, you know, it, it's just not an easy thing to talk about what these guys did. Yeah, and so I guess he picked him up in in Hollywood. Um, it's mid seventies, you know, Southern California. This is kind of a freewheeling. Is it hippie? You know, is it is it kind of, you know, like people from the East Coast think, you know, California is all hippies. But at that time, it was, this was before people were really aware of serial killers, isn't it? Yeah, not a lot of people, they, they'd see the newspaper and it never crossed their mind that this could happen to them. Um, and as I discussed before, serial killers, want, they're not abundant. You know, there's usually between 38 and 40 of them working in the entire United States at any one given time. It just happens that during this particular time, the late 70s, early 80s, 
you had probably between 11 and 14 of them working around the same area in Southern California. And that is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just, you know, there's. I was thinking about, because I've lived here in Los Angeles for several years, and there's still to this day so much empty farmland and old abandoned ranches and canyons and just places that you can um that are that are out of the way out of public view and i mean so you got you have his victims here from newport beach you know all the way down to van nuys that's i'm gonna guess 40 miles and but they're totally different cities you know they're they're different places altogether and yeah they're off the highway but you know everything in LA is off a highway and so it it's almost hard to connect them because you know millions of people live off of all these freeway exits and I don't know if that was intentional or just that he was cruised around a lot but you know this is like a 150 mile range that he has here yeah and that's that's completely true in the late 70s, early 80s, and even into the 90s, most law enforcement agencies did not communicate with each other. If they knew they were looking for a serial they were sure they may have shared information. But back then, it was a big pissing contest. They didn't want to share information because they wanted the credit for it. So all, the only thing that one of these guys had to do was just cross a county line or a jurisdiction line, and it would be months before that information reached the following uh, police departments. So by him killing in Westminster one day, North Hollywood the next day, Santa Monica the, the following day, yeah, it kind of, they don't share information. They didn't have the internet. Um, the fingerprints were not at the ready where you could just put in a fingerprint and you'd run it really quickly. CODIS was not around for DNA. So you're talking about police work where the law enforcement was sitting down, looking at a fingerprint and comparing it by hand to the next fingerprint. It's no wonder they never caught these guys until or circumstances happen where someone makes a mistake or someone tells on him and then it ticks off law enforcement to look at these guys and look at this particular guy and um, follow them around, like which was what happened with Bonnie. Hey, man. Hey, so where do we go? from here in the story yeah it's just I, I was actually just looking at that as we wait to connect again and it's unfortunate that you know this guy my god he has a murder on August the 27th he has another one on September the 9th another one on September 19th he goes from San Bernardino County Orange County Hollywood Santa Monica, and he keeps moving. I don't know if he did it on purpose or not, but even on one day, he strikes twice. On March the 21st, 1980, he lures a 14-year-old boy, Glenn B., into his van. Same results. Raping, strangling, beating. Um, a few hours later, he abducts a 15-year-old, does the same thing to him from a, a bus stop in Garden Grove. And the bodies are found right next to each other, next to um, the Ortega Highway, um, 
by the San Juan campgrounds. It's it just, it's incredible that this guy was able to move around so quickly with um, a crime partner. I mean, the first crime partner helped him in nine murders. And his method of, of murder was crowbar, ice pick, torture, beating, strangling. He had this one signature move that was a windlass strangulation method. And I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm, and I'm reading all of these kids that he killed and it just, I, I can't help but feel that it's just that of rape. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You know, he's been executed, but I can't help but feel this anger rising inside of me. You know, and then he picks up another um, crime partner, Gregory Matthews. I want to pronounce his last name correctly. Um, Mealy. And he starts with him too. He begins to abduct, rape, and murder kids. 12 years old, 11 years old, 14 years old. He stabs one of them with an ice pick in the ear. Um, yeah, it's hard for two guys like you and I to sit here and talk about this when we obviously have opinions of what we probably would have done to this guy for doing this. How That's why I'm kind of wondering, and I'm not trying to slander anyone, but about the house where he's meeting this guy Butts and... Like, I'm not trying to make light of it, but how do you broach the subject? And then how many times do you do that before someone goes, okay, well, I'm calling the police. You just asked me if I wanted to go kill people with you. Is it a look that someone has? Is it, do you plant seeds? I just, I don't know if I want to understand, but how do two strangers that just met end up killing people together? It's so bizarre. No, it's, it's far way to bizarre, to the left of bizarre. Because one of his crime partners, a kid named William Ray Pug, he's actually 17 years old when he begins to abduct, rape, sodomize, and murder victims with um, William Bonnie. So he's killing people that same age. What made this kid okay or, or what made him not into a victim I, I i i yeah i struggle that with that as well i don't understand how he finds one seventeen-year-old, he murders him but he takes on the other one as, an, as a crime partner well you start I, thinking it, about how he was raped as a child and then how you know people who are sexually abused unfortunately they they victimize others decent uh, percentage of the time I don't think it's as much as people think but it's a it's a substantial amount of people that that take that out on someone else and you know they can probably sense if someone's been abused if someone's been the victim of uh, of, of rape or child rape or whatever you know they, they can probably see it on them and he was uh, and that I'm with you in that it this is infuriating 
and I, he's not one of these guys that's half retarded, you know, he's, he's smart enough to be completely aware of the consequences of what he's doing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can see the point that someone was abused and they have some issues, but when you turn into a full adult, and I mean a person whose brain is developed, that they're past the age of 20, 25, 26, 30 years of age, and they're continuing with this behavior, look, we, we make decisions, and um, he was fully aware of what he was doing, which makes me, um, which almost makes it very fitting what happens to him, because it is that 17-year-old accomplice who's arrested, um, in Los Angeles County for car theft and um, during an interview with a counselor he kind of suggests that he knows about who the freeway killer is and that information then is relayed to Sergeant St. John of the LAPD Homicide Division who goes to speak to this 17 year old accomplice uh, William Ray I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But um, he then gives him all the information about what he's done with this guy, with William Bonnie, and what he knows William Bonnie hasn't done, and that he is actually the freeway killer. Uh, because he was following himself during the newspaper. He would show these accomplices who he was, and he'd brag to them, look, this is me, I am the freeway killer. So... This armed with this information, uh, Sergeant St. John then put the surveillance team on body, and the, the surveillance starts on June the 2nd, 1980. But unfortunately, um, the team that was set up um, was too late to save a young man by the name of Stephen W., who was um, killed by body during the spree. Um, but during this, a surveillance team was being set up. So they they began to monitor monitor Bonnie, and they, they saw him try to attempt a number uh, of a pickups of these kids, and then he finally succeeds on June 11th. He lures a kid into his van. It's a 15-year-old boy, um, and his name is Harold P. And the van is parked in a parking lot, and when the law enforcement team sees that the van's been there for a few moments, they rush in there, and of course, they find Bonnie raping the five-year-old, uh, the 15-year-old uh, boy, and they make their arrest. And it's while he's in custody that then Bonnie confesses to abducting, raping, and murdering over 21 boys. Um, and there is n- and there is no remorse by, uh, by, by him anywhere throughout his career or anything else. And I'd like to just quote to you that when he was asked, what would you be doing if you were free? His response was, I'd be killing. I couldn't stop killing. It got easier each time. Yeah, and you see the tenacity. So they, they're on to him. They're following him around for a few hours, and he's just over and over just maniacally routinely trying to kidnap these kids I mean, Let's call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded just at a a feverish 
he's almost a professional at this point. Oh, he's exactly that. Yeah, he's he's an expert at picking up boys that he deems to be submissive or just good kids. Kids that would not fight back or don't have the strength to fight back. He, he was looking for victims. And, um, I mean, fittingly enough, Vermin Butts, his first accomplice, was arrested as well, as were all his other accomplices. And three months after his arrest, uh, Vermin Butts commits suicide. And then the other crime partners or accomplices, if you want to call them, uh, James Michael Monroe, William Ray Pug, and Gregory Matthew Mealy all testified against Bonning that they received lesser sentences for helping convict um, William the Freeway Killer Bonning. So the boy that he was in the process of raping and killing when the police showed up, uh, when they they busted him, the that kid made it out though, right? He lived. The 15-year-old boy um, named Harold T was rescued, uh, but he had the um, put up with what was happening to him, which was he was being raped by uh, this monster when the police opened the van and found him. This guy, of all the serial killers that I have been that I've studied, I've looked at, and I've observed over the years, William Bonning has to be, at least in my opinion, because of who his victims were, uh, probably the worst one that I've ever seen. No remorse, nothing. He just, he was a machine. Yeah, so he's caught because he, in part, they're, they're able to pin a lot of the victims on him because he used this strangulation method that's um, called windless and that's uh, it's a noose with a fixed knot and then I guess there's a stick placed between the noose and the neck which I don't know if that is faster I don't even want to get into it but so that's kind of partly I guess that's his uh, that's his signature I guess yeah, kind of his method, but there were other things that convicted him. Of course, he had he had a testimony of three of his accomplices that were actually there for most of the murders. There was also this carpet fiber found in the pubic area of the children that he murdered. Um, and that carpet fiber was also attributed to the carpet that was in his van. So there was a lot of things that the jury had in order to convict him. But I believe at the end of the day, um, his past record of rape, molestation throughout his life, the testimony of his three accomplices that were actually there during a number of those murders, that's what got the juries in Orange County and Los Angeles to convict William Bonnie to be the freeway uh, killer. Um, you know, he he was, um, as I, I mentioned before, he was uh, very set on not caring. Um, he felt that what he did was what he does, and he did not make um, it a secret that he didn't care. He said, he, actually, his words say, um, they feel that my death will bring closure, and I'm quoting this, but that's not the case. They're going to find out. Um, during his Los Angeles trial, 
specifically the murder of Gary Kay, the prosecution introduced evidence that proved that the murder of that child was, in fact, part of a ritual of the black arts. So this guy was not only a murderer, a serial killer, and everything else, he's also practicing the black arts. He's into magic. He's into the black Bible. As you know very well, is one of the many stories in the paranormal book that I wrote and William Bonnie before his death um, or right after his death his ghost supposedly appeared to a uh, prison guard here at the prison and there's been sightings of him since his execution so this guy was a bad guy all the way around there's no redeeming factor in this guy there's nothing you and I could find if we dug deep enough that would in any way, shape, or form redeem him in anybody's eyes. Yeah. Um, and I guess Ramirez, he overlapped with him for a few years, and he was also, he had like some satanic Bible, right? Yeah, Richard Ramirez is another one. And, and I, it seems to be a theme with these guys. Um, black arts, black Bible. Um, and yeah, uh, Richard Ramirez did not make it a, a secret we did. Neither did Bonnie. And it's pretty easy to see what type of influences um, were motivating this guy to do what he did. Not only his personal appetites he had, these guys are just evil people. And um, being here on the roll, I can tell you there's a lot of bad people here, but there's a difference between a bad person and an evil person. William Bonding was an evil person. Yeah, and he, so he never showed any remorse, and he, I guess he was, this is what he wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, look, just before his execution, which was on February 23rd, 1996, um, he had words for the victim's families. I mean, this guy went, went out of his way to tell the families of his victims, and I'll quote it again. This is what he told the victim's families just before he's executed. He says to them, and I quote, they feel that my death will bring closure, but that's not the case. They're going to find out. He was referring to the black arts. He was referring to coming up, that he was going to come back, murder spree or whatever. Was, was he talking them? Did he know something we don't know? We're never going to find that out. But this just proves the kind of state of mind this guy had. He did what he did because he liked it. Pretty have, simple. Have you heard the theory that he had some prefrontal brain damage? And that that could have affected his impulses. I guess I'd be more apt to buy into that if he did this once or twice. And he's doing it dozens of times. I don't know if that's an impulse every time. Yeah. You know, this is where you and I kind of, you know, you don't believe in death penalty. I'm kind of a conservative, so I guess that works for you and I here. But let me tell you, there was no brain impairment. There was nothing that made this guy do that. 
this guy did it because he liked it. And this is the evidence I have for that. He spent 16 years here on death row. If he was this machine that could not stop because he could have been on the yard trying to rape other men, but he wasn't. He was afraid of them. He was looking for victims. He was a killer of opportunity. He did it because he liked to do it. He did it because this is what he liked to do. He was programmed from being a child of abuse to doing this. And he was just an evil guy. Uh, I can't find any excuse in any book or any medical journal to give me any type of peace of mind that this guy did because he was compulsed to do it or he was impulsive or because his brain was damaged. That's just a bunch of hogwash. And I'm sorry, I'm just, I've, I've been around these guys long enough to tell you that evil is evil. Serial killers don't do things because, from, because of brain damage. They do it because it's what they like to do, it's what they're programmed to do. And the best way to describe them is to describe them as machines. That's it.